It's election week. The commercials will stop. <laughs> Tuesday, it's election day. Um, I am going to, for those of you that are interested, from 4.30 to 6.30 on Tuesday, I'll be here in our small chapel right there to pray with and serve communion to any of you that want to come and just stop by and pray for our country. Don't have to be here for the whole two hours. You can stop by for two minutes. If you want to come by and pray, uh, come by. I'll be here. In the meantime, some of you may have seen us on Facebook. How many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's brilliant work, The Screwtape Letters? Let me see your hands. Okay, so most of you. If you haven't read it, it's worth it. It's a series of letters from a senior devil, Screwtape, who is instructing his nephew, Wormwood, about how to continue to deceive a man. He's kind of been assigned to this man and how to deceive him so he he doesn't advance into Christianity. So a modern unknown author has taken this concept, his style, and applied it to today's political situation. I'm going to read it because it's it's very, it's, it's just... It makes me chuckle, and it raises an issue. So here's what the Uncle Screwtape says to his nephew, Wormwood, another of the devils. Be sure the patient remains completely fixated on politics. That's most of you, by the way. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they've never even met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue Character and the things the patient can control. Hmm. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing the problem is here with himself. Keep up the good work, Uncle Screwtape. Just kind of captures a little bit, kind of sobering, isn't it? These words kind of hint at what is our real problem and perhaps the solution. How can we move forward and actually improve this world? You can't control the elections, but I encourage all of you to go vote because there's more than the President of the United States at stake. We have lots of local things going on, too. So I encourage you to go vote. Think about these words from Scripture, Colossians 3, set our mind on the things above. Let's take a look at our own integrity. Set our minds on the things above. Or Romans 12, be renewed in your minds. Don't be transformed or conformed to the world. Be transformed by the things that matter, spiritual things. Not that this doesn't matter. This matters very much for our country. But be spiritually minded. Or Philippians 4, to we are to dwell on what is true, honorable, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. One person at a time, but it starts with us. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. We serve the risen Lord Jesus. We serve the one true living God. He knows what to do for our country. So let's stop and pray. Father, we uh, lift up, first of all, Don and Patty Wolf. It was so good to see him here in the first service. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them in his fight 
to overcome cancer. Pray, Lord, for the other people in our church that are sick and need help, that either their prayer request is confidential or we don't even know about it, but you know. Pray that you would be very engaged, very involved with us as a church in showing grace and helping these people that are suffering and struggling. And Father, I pray for our upcoming elections. Lord, my prayer is very simple. You know what to do. We will vote, but we trust you. We look to you for wisdom. Father, our prayer is that you would give wisdom to all of our leaders to guide us well and that you would use this opportunity to draw us closer to you as a nation. So many people in our world don't even know you. And Lord, that saddens us. So we pray that you would use this opportunity. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in, a, we're in a study in Philippians. We're in Philippians 3 today. If you care to follow along, we'll be in Philippians 3. And uh, the series title is Standing Together, The Case for Joy. And joy is at the heart of it, and standing together is what's going to bring us joy. And so we've been arguing that each week. So thus far, we've established three key principles for effectively bringing the gospel out into this world in a way that brings us joy. Principle number one was to stand firm together for the faith of the gospel. Let me remind you what the gospel is. I never get tired of reminding you of that. The gospel is the truth that we serve the one true living God. This is what's captured in this book. We serve the one true living God who cares about this world so much that he'll do whatever it takes short of violating your free will to get you to turn to him. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Back up. Back to the beginning. For God so loved what? What? The world. God loves the world. And the gospel just means the good news. It's the fantastic, unbelievable news that the God who made this world loves this world and everything and everyone in it. Everything and everyone. That is the fantastic news. And he is moving into their lives on a regular basis. So as we stand firm for our faith in this area right here, we will experience joy because the world doesn't know who he is. I've said many times, don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. They don't really know what that means. All they have is a stereotype. And you get to disprove it. That's the wonderful thing about it. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. They don't know who he is. In three and a half years, I have met lots and lots and lots of people in this county that will talk to me about that. Key number two, suffer together for the sake of the gospel. Suffer together. When one of us is hurting, we should all be hurting. There we talked about the fact that, that as the Holy Spirit moves through our midst, some days some of us need extra grace, and some days some of us have extra grace. I still remember when I woke up the day after my first wife died, I desperately needed extra grace. Desperately. And some of you are there. Others of us are enjoying a time of rest and peace, and we have extra grace to give. Give it. Suffer together. The world will look at us and go, wow, I wonder how they do that. When I'm suffering, no one cares that much about me. And the third key is to sacrifice together, to demonstrate that the, re- the gospel is very real to us. Sacrifice by putting each other first, move into each other's lives. So today we're going to look in Philippians 3. We're going to explore another principle. This is the concept of pressing ahead together, and the result of that comes from that is knowing Christ. We're going to press ahead together, but this raises several questions. 
What does it mean to press ahead? Press ahead toward what? What's the actual goal? How do we do it together? That's another question. What does it mean to know Christ? That's part of the outcome. If we press ahead together toward the goal, whatever that is, somehow we'll come to know Christ even better. How is that possible? So we're going to try to jump into this and answer some of those questions. So first place we're going to start is Philippians 3. Paul, up until this point, has used three examples to help us grasp how to live out our faith. In the early part of chapter 2, he talks about Jesus. You remember last week we rewrote the hymn, so the guys quoted it. And I said any group in here could quote it. The women could quote it. You could quote it as wives. You can quote it as husbands. You can quote it as children, teenagers, mothers, however you want to quote it. And what this says is it tells us Christ's sacrifice by putting us first, this famous hymn of Christ. So Jesus becomes the first example. Timothy, towards the end of chapter 2, and then Epaphroditus, two other examples he uses as well. All of them demonstrated the willingness to put others first in order to bring the gospel out to this world in a redemptive and healthy way. Remember when we talked about the uh, principles of how to apply Scripture? Those are two of the principles. Principle number one, does our application, once we decide to apply a passage, we don't have to apply every passage, by the way, but once we do, does it bring the love of Christ out to a broken world? And principle number two, principle number one, principle number two is does it do it in a healthy way? And these examples demonstrate both of those. So Paul is now going to use himself as an example of what it means to press ahead together. So the very first thing he says is in chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evil... Whoa, whoa, whoa. What just happened? He tells us to, pray, to rejoice together and takes an immediate left turn. Watch out for those dogs. Those dogs? Well, we'll come back to that. Rejoice in the Lord. Now listen to what he says all throughout this passage, which is why we entitled it The Case for Joy. In chapter 1, verse 18... He says, uh, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 17. Bear with us. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad, and I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 3, we just read. Rejoice in the Lord, brothers and sisters. Rejoice together. Or chapter 4, verse 4, very famous verse next week. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This is what we were made for, joy. We weren't made for the angst, the discouragement, the challenge, the struggle. We weren't made for death. I had the privilege of being with Kevin and Sandy Brantley this week as they said goodbye to their dog. They've had for a number of years and cry with them. I said goodbye to my grandmother. I'm going to go out and say it in person this week. We're not made for death at any level. We're made for joy. That's what we're made for. So Paul, woven all throughout this book, is the command to rejoice. That's what we're created for. That's it. What does that mean? Joy. It's a state of happiness. It's a state of well-being. It's a state of contentment. You really can rest this week. The Lord's got it under control. Vote. 
It's a community concept. Every place you turn and see joy being talked about and rejoicing, it's something that's done together. And that makes sense to us. How joyful is it if it's just you by yourself? Joy is meant to be shared and expressed in community. It's a community concept, but it also has a focus. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what he says in chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Chapter 3. Further, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We are to rejoice together in what the Lord is doing, will do, and has done in our lives. We are to rejoice because we have found the risen Lord Jesus. Or maybe I should say, he found us. We should rejoice because he found us. And now we get the chance to talk and share and express that to others. When we focus our core on our core beliefs about Jesus, we will find rest and joy. Then he makes this unexpected turn. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. And uh, the, the NIV of which I'm uh, reading from just gives it as one imperative, but it's actually three. Watch out for those dogs. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators. Who are these people? Who is he talking about? It's very easy for you to point and say, well, our enemy is this person or that government agency or the president. Or uh, It's easy to point, isn't it? But it's going to surprise you when we dig in a little bit and see who the enemy is because you might find yourself in this verse. You might actually be the enemy. So follow along, listen carefully. Who are these people? Dogs. It's the first thing he says. Dogs were considered the most despicable and miserable of all creatures, and that is still true in most of the world. Most of the world doesn't think like we do. Oh, how lovely and cuddly they are. They're despicable creatures. We have an example of that in our church. That's Mark Hill, by the way. He thinks dogs are despicable creatures. Just asking. <laughs> They're despicable. They wouldn't eat anything, including other dead animals in their own vomit. They became known in, among the Israelites. It became a metaphor to describe their enemies. So think about this. We have that in Psalm 22, Psalm 59, other places. The Israelites would call the Gentiles, you dog. That word is used throughout Scripture. Evildoers. Psalm 14. These are the people that deliberately turn away from God and do evil things. Again, within the Israelite community, that began to describe the Gentiles. You evildoers. You dogs. Mutilators. Now, this is a sarcastic twist on the significance of circumcision. The law taught that circumcision has no value unless accompanied by submission to the Lord. Everyone wonder why? Circumcision? I mean, I'm a guy. I've wondered that. Okay? Why did God pick circumcision? Circumcision is always tied to adultery. Failed circumcision in the Old Testament is always tied to spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery is always tied to physical adultery. Every time a guy was tempted to be in an adulterous relationship, he had a sign right there with him. I profess to serve the one true living God. And so if it's only an outward sign, it means nothing. It means nothing. So when you read in the law, in Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 30, and a bunch of the prophets talk about it, 
They talk about true circumcision is what happens inside. Circumcision is just an outward sign of what happens inside. All of these three lead to the tentative conclusion that he is referring to Judaizers. He doesn't describe them in detail here. He gives us some clues about them, but they're described elsewhere in his writings with, uh, with detail. Now, let me clarify right off the bat. I'm not talking about Jews who are sincere in their faith. That is not where I'm going. Okay, I'm talking about people who were deliberately evil in the way they lived out their faith. In fact, I'm going to read to you uh, out of Romans chapter 2 what he says about what a true Jew is. It's a a wonderful passage. Romans 2, verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. That refers back to Deuteronomy 10 and the law. That's what a true follower of this one true living God is, one whose heart has been circumcised of evil. So when he uses these phrases, he's talking about these Judaizers. These are Jews who are working to keep the Gentiles out and excluded from the gospel. You're not like us. Stay out. Get it? Stay out. All religions have religious fanatics. They all do. And I think that's whom Paul, who Paul is talking about. And he tells us to watch out for them. Do we have Judaizers today? Not really. Not in the strict sense of the word. I've never actually met a Judaizer. I'm familiar with Paul's thought about them in the first century. Here's where we read principle number three into effect where the Bible gives us variation and freedom, we'll take it. So Paul is telling the Philippians to watch out for Judaizers, but we're going to expand that view and look at what he means by enemies. And that's who we're to watch out for and be careful of. And so, what does a good theology of having an enemy look like? We've never really talked about that. How would you define that? An enemy. If I mention that, all of you immediately go someplace. You have an enemy somewhere, right? Uh, but it might surprise you who our true enemy really is. When Jesus came on the scene, he completely redefined the traditional concept of the enemy. For example, Zacchaeus, tax collector. There's an enemy. He extorted every one of the people. for He, he was part of the Roman government. He took their money and extorted them. If they charged 10 bucks, he'd take 20. Pocket the rest, pay the 10 bucks. He was hated by everyone. What did Jesus do? He ate with him. And he didn't confront him. He ate with him. And because of his presence, Zacchaeus turned to him. Or what about the woman caught in adultery in John 8? When they showed up and said, we caught this woman in adultery. I always wonder why they didn't bring the man, but that's have to wait till later to ask that question. They brought him to Jesus. The Pharisees said, we caught this woman in adultery. In the very act. How shameful and embarrassing is that? And they said, well, you, what does the law say to execute her? What do you think we should do? And he said, let the one without sin cast the first stone. And they all wander away. And he said, where are your accusers? And she said, I don't know. And he said, neither do I accuse you. Wonderful words of grace, aren't they? Or what about the promiscuous Samaritan woman at the well? Where's your husband? I'm not married. Yeah, I know that. He said, you've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And she's 
full of wisdom, says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Rightfully so. How would he know that? And what does he do? He talks to her about the kingdom. The first person he talks to about spiritual life in the new kingdom is a woman who's a promiscuous, despised woman. The Jews would spit on her because she's a Samaritan. Well, she's worse than that. She is a promiscuous woman. Her own people would spit on her, and that's who he chose to reveal the truth about worship in the Spirit and drew her close. What about this? when he eats at the Pharisee's house, the sinner who comes in and washes his feet? I love his words to describe her. She's a woman of many sins. I just think that's wonderful because that's me. That's how he describes her. And he confronts the Pharisee and says, when I came in, you didn't even show me respect or wash my feet. And look what she's doing. So here's what we find. With the average person on the street struggling with sin, he was full of grace. But to the leadership, he had very little tolerance. Woe to you Pharisees. You who hold yourselves in moral superiority to the people around you. Ooh. Do you ever struggle with that? Christ went further. He he redefined what it means to respond to these enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Turn the other cheek. That's all new in world history. All of that is new. So Paul gives us more clues in the book of Philippians. For example, in Philippians 1.17, he says, The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. So they're defining their Christianity out of selfish ambition. So we learn something about enemies of the cross. They're selfish. By the way, one of the requirements to be an elder is to not be self-willed. That's the question. That's something we look at in our elders. Are you self? Are you going to drive to have your own way? If you are, you're not going to be part of the elders. No, the church comes first, always. Or in Philippians one twenty eight, when he's talking about uh, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, without being frightened, verse twenty eight, in any way by those who oppose you. So they oppose the inclusiveness of the gospel. You realize the gospel is inclusive. Its scope represents every human on the planet. That's how broad and far God's love goes. Or chapter 2, verse 3, he says in there, uh, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So enemies are those who are guilty of selfish ambition. They put themselves first. Or if we go on to chapter 2, verse 15, he says, uh, do do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So the enemies of the cross come from a broken world, and they bring that with them. They don't lose it. Chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, the end of where we are. As I have often told you, he said, before now and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So another definition of the enemy is that they oppose the cross, and therefore they oppose the gospel the news that we serve the one true living God and he cares about this broken world. Their mind is on earthly things. These are people who are opposed to the plan of God as expressed in the gospel, which is our goal, by the way. Do we really want to keep out people who are different from us? Some of you do. I'm just being honest with you. I've sat across the table and had coffee with you. 
I've had some of you say to me, I hear we have gays in our church. They shouldn't be there. Really? Don't we want them here? You can fill up your bucket with whatever you think of when it comes to morality. No, we shouldn't have alcoholics here. We shouldn't have adulterers. Every one of your buckets is a little bit different than everybody else's. But what's consistent is that we define that as sin. You know why I hardly ever use the word sin from up front? Because what it means in our culture today is whatever you're doing is worse than whatever I'm doing. That's really what it means. You may be sleeping with a woman, but if I'm lusting after one, in, your, in my mind, that's, yours is worse than mine. Do we really want to keep these people out? Why? I hear the language around here. This is my church. That's motivating us. This is my church. No, it's not. No, it's not. Who does this church belong to? Jesus Christ. That's who it belongs to. We are servants or slaves. You could use the word slave, same word. We are slaves of the Most High. This is His church. Whenever we show moral superiority, we become Pharisees and therefore enemies of the cross. That's who Paul is talking about. Surprisingly, it's not President Obama. Sorry to disappoint some of you. It's not Hillary Clinton, probably us speaking to the same group, nor is it Donald Trump, now speaking to the opposite group. No. The enemies of the cross are those who live in moral superiority over others. And we need to learn how to have conversation without bringing that moral superiority into the conversation. You really want to impact the world for Christ? Then give up on being offended. Give up on that. Some of you might actually be enemies. So you tell me, who's the bigger enemy? The self-righteous or the broken? Ours is a religion that welcomes people. Welcomes everyone. Now, the rest of the passage just makes a lot of sense. Because the first, next thing he says is, do not boast in ourselves. Philippians 3 through 11. not going to read the whole thing. Paul talks in great detail about what he could boast about. He says that in uh, verse 5, he's uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We're talking about the very best Hebrew. He, uh, he's a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. He had a faultless righteousness. It's just amazing. Okay, but he starts in verse 3. For to, it is us who are the circumcision, we who served God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have reasons for such confidence. Boasting is not the issue. That's not the problem. Boasting in your own selfishness is. Every one of you should experience the incredible joy of partnering with the Lord and watching it happen. God loves to partner with us. To God be the glory in the church. Boast in Christ. Boast in Christ. Boasting in the Lord means putting behind us our own glorying, our own selfish thinking. We are to demonstrate instead a righteousness that comes only from God. 
That's true righteousness. And you know what righteousness means? Really simply, it's putting to rights what is broken. That's what it means at the very basic level. That's what we do as Christians. We move into the lives of the people in our county and we put to rights what is broken in their world. If they're hungry, we feed them. If they can't pay their bills, we write a check. If they're sick with cancer, we put our arms around them and love them. That's what we do. That's living out righteousness. That's called living out our faith. So then he concludes in verse 15, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of these things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together and follow my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have as a model, keep your eye on those who live as we do. For as I have told you often uh, before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. They're opposed to the cross. But here are these wonderful words. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. First question, are we living like citizens of heaven? Because that's what we are. Or do we practice moral superiority? That's what the Pharisees did. What was their prayer? Thank God I'm not like this person. The truth is you are. Do you hate somebody? That makes you a murderer. Have you ever lusted? That makes you an adulterer. And go on and on. There's no different. We're all in the same level playing field. That's why I use the word brokenness more often. To communicate that. And our religion is one that should welcome everyone into our congregation. So they can learn about Christ. So... Not only are we living as citizens, do we represent our citizenship well? Do we? Never going to experience joy unless we press ahead together. And press ahead together is accomplishing the goal. And what's the goal? Reaching the nations for Christ. Bringing the love of Christ out to a broken and tired world. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your believing in us so much that you would use us as part of your plan. Thank you for bringing a kingdom into this world, our own culture, the one we know so well that are most comfortable with, and yet we long for something deeper. Thanks for bringing a kingdom through your son that we can bring out to these people that don't know you our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our co-workers, people we meet, complete strangers. Thank you for bringing a kingdom to the earth that is a real kingdom, a legitimate kingdom. And Father, we are very concerned about our own government from the president down to our local governments. And so we ask you to, to bless us as a nation, but help us to stay focused on the truth that is that you are God and we will serve you. And Lord, my prayer is that you would bring each person here into a relationship with somebody who doesn't know you.
so that their lives represent you well. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.